Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode, we are going over the Come Follow Me lesson for December 12th through 18th, 2022. This is covering the book of Malachi. And now let's bring out the star of the show, the scriptures. Hi, scriptures. Oh, it's so great to see you. And now let's consult the Scripturematic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 11 minutes, 47 seconds. Oh my goodness, is this the shortest one we've had? It is. It's the shortest one that we will have all year. Wow. And what would that be daily? 1 minute, 41 seconds. My goodness. You know what? If you haven't yet met your goal to read the assigned reading for Come Follow Me Week this year, this is the week to do it. Commit to reading the whole book of Malachi. There's no reason not to, and we'll help you along. Well, and it's a good thing that we have such a short reading. It's often very busy around the time of the holidays, and so this will help us to be able to meet our goals for reading Come Follow Me this week. Oh, it's so good. Now, we've got time codes here if you want to follow along chapter by chapter, or buckle up, we'll talk about it all together. So let's get to it. The Book of Malachi. Let's take our introduction from the seminary manual. It says, The book states that it contains the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. In Hebrew, the name Malachi means my messenger. This name fittingly reflects the important messages the prophet delivered to the people of his day, many of which also apply to the Lord's people in the last days. We know very little about the life of Malachi aside from what we learn from his writings, His origin and background are unknown, but he evidently lived in the 5th century B.C. and would have been a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah. Although we do not know when or where Malachi's prophecies were recorded, Malachi delivered them in approximately 430 B.C., most likely in Jerusalem. A century after the Jews returned to their homeland, many of them had become complacent and less devoted to the Lord. Through the prophet Malachi, the Lord addressed the Jews' declining commitment to God. The Lord instructed his covenant people to return to him by bringing him their tithes and offerings with greater faithfulness, and he promised to bless and protect those who did so. The book of Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, and he was the last prophet we know of to minister in the land of Israel until John the Baptist began to preach more than 400 years later. In addition, Malachi is one of the most frequently quoted Old Testament prophets. He was quoted by New Testament writers, often with specific reference to the mission of John the Baptist, by Jesus Christ to the Nephites, and by Moroni to the prophet Joseph Smith. The book of Malachi was written in a distinctive literary form that features dialogue between the Lord and the people of Israel. Some of these instances of dialogue include questions posed by the Lord or by various people, as well as statements from those who oppose the Lord. So let's jump into Malachi chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. There's a commentary here by Elder D. Todd Christofferson from the April 2011 General Conference. He says, I would like to speak to one particular attitude and practice we need to adopt if we are to meet our Heavenly Father's high expectations. It is this. 
willingly to accept and even seek correction. Correction is vital if we would conform our lives unto a perfect man, that is, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Paul said of divine correction or chastening, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Though it is often difficult to endure, truly we ought to rejoice that God considers us worth the time and trouble to correct. I love that. It's good. And that is a great introduction to the purpose of Malachi's preaching. Right. Let's go on in verse 2. I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, Wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob. Now, the Institute Manual points out the word hated in Hebrew means to be loved less than someone else, not to be disliked with bitter hostility. Esau was the brother of Jacob who became Israel, father of the twelve tribes. Students of the scriptures know that the Lord hates the sin rather than the sinner, but when people array themselves against the Lord, as Esau and his descendants, the Edomites, had done for centuries, the Lord withdraws his blessings. In this sense, Jacob was loved and Esau hated. Jacob stood as a symbol for Israel, for the chosen people, while Esau, Edom, symbolized the world. This gives the Lord's statement much broader meaning. That is an excellent clarification. Now, in the next few verses, the Lord pointed out that the children of Israel had been blessed above other nations, but look at how they had treated the Lord. Let's pick it up in verse 6. A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear, saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O priests that despise my name? And ye say, Wherein have we despised thy name? Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar. And ye say, Wherein have we polluted thee? In that ye say, The table of the Lord is contemptible. So they want an example of how they have despised the Lord. Outside of the polluted bread on the altar, look at the condition of the animals the Israelites were presenting as sacrifices to the Lord. In verse 8, And if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if ye offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee, or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? Skipping to verse 13, Ye said also, Behold, what a weariness is it! And ye have snuffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts. And ye have brought that which was torn, and the lame, and the sick. Thus ye brought an offering. Should I accept this of your hand, saith the Lord? Now, look at what the Lord had instructed in the law of Moses. Let's flip way back to Leviticus chapter 22, starting in verse 21. And whosoever offereth a sacrifice of peace offerings unto the Lord to accomplish his vow, or a free will offering in beeves, that's the plural of beef, or sheep, it shall be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no blemish therein. Blind, or broken, or maimed, or having a wen, or an abnormal growth, or a cyst, or scurvy, or scabbed, ye shall not offer these unto the Lord, 
nor make an offering by fire of them upon the altar unto the Lord. Either a bullock or a lamb that hath anything superfluous or lacking in his parts, that mayest thou offer for a freewill offering, but for a vow it shall not be accepted. So why was this so important? Remember that the animals that were sacrificed represented Jesus Christ, the Messiah and Redeemer who would come. And he was perfect. Right. Just look at the instruction. Now compare that to what Malachi says they've been doing. And they're puzzled by why this is not appropriate. And yet it goes fully against the law and the intent behind those instructions from Leviticus. I love that the Lord gives the comparison. Hey, offer these damaged animals to your governor. Will he be happy with you? Right. You know? Yeah. Why do you think that's okay? And that's a great thing for us to examine. Are we more concerned with what we offer to the world than what we offer to God? Let's take a look in verse 14 of Malachi 1. But cursed be the deceiver, which hath in his flock a male, and voweth, and sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing. For I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. So there were those who had healthy animals they could have sacrificed, but who offered sick and wounded animals instead. Have we ever been like that? Given the Lord less so we could keep the best for ourselves? Is there something that the Lord has asked of us that we're holding back from him? Remember that sometimes giving our best to the Lord includes the amount of effort, willingness, or quality we put into something. Mm-hmm. Well, that brings us to Malachi chapter 2. In the first three verses, Malachi addressed the priests of his day who were responsible for providing righteous examples to the people. He warned that if they did not hear and apply the Lord's direction, they would bring curses instead of blessings upon themselves. Let's look at what the Lord expected from his priests of Levi, starting in verse 4. And ye shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you, that my covenant might be with Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. My covenant was with him of life and peace, and I gave them to him for the fear wherewith he feared me, and was afraid before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth, and iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity, and did turn many away from iniquity. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Now remember, in verse 5, when it's talking about fear, it's actually talking about reverence. Right, but the priests Malachi is preaching to have failed in their responsibilities. They were not true to the responsibilities given to their forefathers. Look at the consequences of the priests' poor examples to the people. Let's pick it up in verse 8. But ye are departed out of the way. Ye have caused many to stumble at the law. Ye have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore have I also made you contemptible and base before all the people, according as ye have not kept my ways, but have been partial in the law. The priests were given a position where the people looked to them as an example of how to live the law of God. Because the priests departed out of the way, They caused many to stumble at the law. 
We as disciples of Christ are to be a light unto the world. Our bad example can cause others to stumble. Many years ago, I did a teacher training class and included was an object lesson. My wife made the most beautiful chocolate cake, frosted with chocolate flowers on top, and I asked if someone wanted a slice of this cake. Of course, everybody did. So I reached my hand in and grabbed a big clump of the cake in my hand and handed it to them. Now, did anyone want that cake? There was nothing different about the ingredients in the cake, how it tasted. What was different was how it was presented. And how it was presented made what honestly was a very delicious cake seem very not delicious. I think that's a great example and reminder to us about how important it is that we are truly a light to the world and that our bad example doesn't cause others to stumble at what is a beautiful gospel. Along that lines, there's a great quote from President Gordon B. Hinckley. This comes from April 1989 General Conference. Here he's addressing a general priesthood body, but it's applicable to everyone. He says, quote, Each of us is responsible for the welfare and the growth and development of others. We do not live only unto ourselves. If we are to magnify our callings, we cannot live only unto ourselves. As we serve with diligence, as we teach with faith and testimony, as we lift and strengthen and build convictions of righteousness in those whose lives we touch, we magnify our priesthood. To live only unto ourselves, on the other hand, to serve grudgingly, to give less than our best effort to our duty, diminishes our priesthood, just as looking through the wrong lenses of binoculars reduces the image and makes more distant the object, end quote. Great point. Now, in the remaining verses of Malachi chapter 2, the Lord chastened the Israelites for breaking their covenant with him, marrying unbelievers, dealing treacherously with their wives, and claiming that those who do evil are good in the sight of the Lord. Hmm. That's a problem. It is. And that brings us to Malachi chapter 3. Now, an important thing to think about as you read chapters 3 and 4 is that these chapters were quoted in full to the Nephites by Jesus Christ himself. It's recorded in 3 Nephi chapter 24 and 25. These scriptures would have been recorded about two centuries after Lehi left Jerusalem. While we're reading, ask yourself, of all the scriptures written since 600 BC, why were these in particular deemed important enough to repeat to those outside the land of Israel? So let's start in verse 1. And as we read, look for what Malachi prophesied that would help God's people return to him. Verse 1, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness." Look at the descriptors Malachi uses to describe the day of the Lord's second coming. 
A refiner uses fire to heat a metal like silver or gold until it reaches a liquid state. The heating process allows dross or impurities to rise to the surface of the liquid metal where the refiner can remove them, thus purging the metal of its impurities. A fuller is someone who cleans and whitens fabrics using soap. Well, that's interesting. But then what does a fulmer do? I think a fulmer creates podcasts. <laughs> you can decide whether that is as useful as whitening fabrics. Right. Well, think about how Jesus Christ is like a refiner, how he's like Fuller's soap. And also, let's not miss the messenger mentioned in verse 1, who will prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. The seminary manual offers this quote from Elder Bruce R. McConkie. It says, It is with reference to the second coming that the ancient word promises, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. John the Baptist did this very thing in the meridian of time, but it remained for Joseph Smith to perform the glorious work in our day. He is the latter-day messenger who was sent to restore the gospel, which itself prepares a people for the return of the Lord. Awesome. Now notice that phrase in verse 3, that they, the sons of Levi, may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Does that sound familiar? Remember early last year when we talked about John the Baptist restoring the priesthood of Aaron? As recorded in Doctrine and Covenants 13, he tells us, And this shall never be taken again from the earth until the sons of Levi do offer again an offering unto the Lord in righteousness. Hey, John. Yes, Jay. You know what I miss? I miss when you used to tell us, like, what scriptures we could find in Handel's Messiah. Well, funny you should mention that. I couldn't let this last lesson go without a reference to Handel's Messiah. Oh, goody. So Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, are used in three of the movements. The first verse appears at the end of the fifth movement, Thus saith the Lord. We talked about that one in our last lesson. The second verse is used for the sixth movement called, But Who May Abide the Day of His Coming? Listen for the violins representing the refiner's fire. That's awesome. And finally, the third verse is a choir number called, And He Shall Purify, Movement 7. We'll include links in the description if you'd like to hear them. I would like to hear them. Now, in the next few verses of chapter 3, these describe how the Savior will, like a refiner's fire, purify the sons of Levi and destroy the wicked at his second coming. As we discussed, the sons of Levi were priesthood holders in ancient Israel. Today, the phrase can refer to modern-day priesthood holders. But what if we have gone astray and have not kept our covenants? Let's take a look at verse 7. Even from the days of your fathers, ye are gone away from mine ordinances, and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye said, Wherein shall we return? Now remember that the Hebrew word often translated as repent means to turn around. Yeah, what a wonderful promise. But how can we return? The Lord indicates one way in the coming verses. In verse 8, Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. 
Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Now today we pay one-tenth of our income as tithing and contribute at least the value of two meals as fast offerings. You can learn more about tithes and offerings by checking the topics in your gospel library in the gospel topics section. Right, that's a great resource. But how do you think paying tithes and offerings might help someone who has strayed from the Lord to return to him? Let's keep going in verse 10. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground. Neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. And all nations shall call you blessed, for ye shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. You know what I love about the law of tithing? Everyone has a tithing story. That's one of those commandments that promotes miracles. It's amazing what living this commandment does to help us to see the Lord's hand in our lives or the lives of those around us. So when we ask the question, but how does this help us return to him? I think it's something we put on the altar that brings down the blessings of heaven. Very true. The seminary manual includes this great quote from Elder David A. Bednar. This comes from the October 2013 General Conference. He says, quote, Often as we teach and testify about the law of tithing, we emphasize the immediate, dramatic, and readily recognizable temporal blessings that we receive. And surely such blessings do occur. Yet some of the diverse blessings we obtain as we are obedient to this commandment are significant but subtle. Sometimes we may ask God for success, and he gives us physical and mental stamina. We might plead for prosperity, and we receive enlarged perspective and increased patience. Or we petition for growth and are blessed with the gift of grace. He may bestow upon us conviction and confidence as we strive to achieve worthy goals, and when we plead for relief from physical, mental, and spiritual difficulties, he may increase our resolve and resilience. I promise that as you and I observe and keep the law of tithing, indeed the windows of heaven will be opened and spiritual and temporal blessings will be poured out such that there shall not be room enough to receive them, End quote. Amen to that. Now, in the next couple of verses, it reports that the Jews in Malachi's day complained that those who broke the commandments were happy and prosperous, and that there was no benefit to keeping the commandments. Look for how the Lord addressed the people's complaint. Let's pick it up in verse 16. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels. And I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. Now, you might find it interesting to note that in verse 17, the phrase, that day when I make up my jewels, 
refers to the second coming of Jesus Christ, according to Bruce R. McConkie in a talk called The Seven Christs. This is from October General Conference, 1982. Interesting. And how, Jay, did you find that commentary from a general conference in 1982? Well, we haven't mentioned this tool in a while, but don't forget the Scripture Citation Index at scriptures.byu.edu. I just clicked Malachi, chapter 3, verse 17, and there is a general conference talk from Bruce R. McConkie from October 1982. Select it, and you can read how he uses the verse and any commentary he includes. We'll include a link to the Scripture Citation Index in the video description. Great tool. Also, in addition to receiving eternal blessings, the righteous enjoy blessings during this life that the wicked do not. For example, let's turn to the Book of Mormon, the Book of Mosiah, chapter 2, verse 41. And moreover, I would desire that ye should consider on the blessed and happy state of those that keep the commandments of God. For behold, they are blessed in all things, both temporal and spiritual. And if they hold out faithful to the end, they are received into heaven, that thereby they may dwell with God in a state of never-ending happiness. O remember... Remember that these things are true, for the Lord God hath spoken it. Wonderful. Well, that brings us to Malachi chapter 4. Let's start in verse 1. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch." Now, that's an interesting image of what will happen to the wicked. Imagine a tree with roots and branches removed. The tree is incomplete and limited without these vital parts. In contrast, let's see what the righteous will experience at the Lord's second coming. Continuing on in verse 2, But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, And ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, calves of the stall, referred to in verse 1, refers to calves that are safe, well-fed, and cared for. The Lord promises that he will similarly protect and care for those who fear his name, as it says in verse 2. That is a very comforting image for me. Let's look at how the Lord said he would help the families of the world before his coming. Starting in verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Do these verses sound familiar? They're quoted an awful lot. The seminary manual provides this commentary. Malachi's prophecy that Elijah would turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers can be found in all four standard works. As side note, we've talked about that before. In the Old Testament, it's here in Malachi chapter 4 verse 6. In the New Testament, it's in Luke chapter 1 verse 17. In the Book of Mormon, it's in 3 Nephi 25 verse 6. In the Doctrine and Covenants, it's in section 2, and of course, in section 110, verses 13 through 16. 
and in the pearl of great price, it's in Joseph Smith history, verse 39. Back to the seminary manual. When Elijah appeared to the prophet Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery in the Kirtland Temple, he alluded to this prophecy, Behold, the time has fully come, which was spoken of by the mouth of Malachi, testifying that he, Elijah, should be sent before the great and dreadful day of the Lord come. This prophecy has great significance for Latter-day Saints because it teaches the doctrines of the sealing power, eternal families, and the work we do for the dead in temples. Yes, and there is another great quote from Elder David A. Bednar. This is from the October 2011 General Conference. He says, Elijah was an Old Testament prophet through whom mighty miracles were performed. He sealed the heavens, and no rain fell in ancient Israel for three and a half years. He multiplied a widow's meal and oil. He raised a young boy from the dead, and he called down fire from heaven in a challenge to the prophets of Baal. At the conclusion of Elijah's mortal ministry, he went up by a whirlwind into heaven and was translated. We learn from Latter-day Revelation that Elijah held the sealing power of the Melchizedek priesthood. The prophet Joseph Smith explained, The spirit, power, and calling of Elijah is that ye have power to hold the key of the fullness of the Melchizedek priesthood and to obtain all the ordinances belonging to the kingdom of God. This sacred sealing authority is essential for priesthood ordinances to be valid and binding both on earth and in heaven. Elijah appeared with Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration and conferred this authority upon Peter, James, and John. Elijah appeared again with Moses and others on April 3, 1836 in the Kirtland Temple and conferred the same keys upon Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. Nice. Going back to the seminary manual, we have this quote from President Henry B. Eyring. This comes from April 2005 General Conference. He says, quote, Many of your ancestors died never having the chance to accept the gospel and to receive the blessings and promises you have received. There are more temples across the earth than there have ever been. More people in all the world have felt the spirit of Elijah move them to record the identities and facts of their ancestors' lives. There are more resources to search out your ancestors than there have ever been in the history of the world. The Lord has poured out knowledge about how to make that information available worldwide through technology that a few years ago would have seemed a miracle. When you were baptized, your ancestors looked down on you with hope. Perhaps after centuries, they rejoiced to see one of their descendants make a covenant to find them and to offer them freedom. In your reunion, you will see in their eyes either gratitude or terrible disappointment. Their hearts are bound to you. Their hope is in your hands. You will have more than your own strength as you choose to labor on to find them. End quote. Well, and there's another great quote that we should include. This is included in the seminary manual, but it's from Elder Jeffrey R. Holland from his book, Christ and the New Covenant. He says this about Elijah, quote, Elijah restored the sealing powers whereby ordinances that were sealed on earth were also sealed in heaven. That would affect all priesthood ordinances, but was particularly important for the sealing of families down through the generations of time. For without that link, no family ties would exist in the eternities. 
and indeed the family of man, would have been left in eternity with neither root, ancestors, nor branch, descendants. Inasmuch as such a sealed, united, celestially saved family of God is the ultimate purpose of mortality, any failure here would have been a curse indeed, rendering the entire plan of salvation utterly wasted. Close quote. You know, like tithing, I feel family history is another one of those areas of the gospel where everyone who does it has a story. That's true. I certainly do. And if you haven't logged into FamilySearch.org in a long time, perhaps now is a good time. The church is constantly changing the site and making new resources available. Earlier this year, they added the 1950 U.S. Census, for example. Are there names you can find that will help your personal family tree to grow? Do those names need the ordinances of the everlasting gospel? Will you help them to get those ordinances by going to the temple and participating on their behalf? That is a great challenge and invitation. Hey, Jay. Yes, John? I seem to have run out of Old Testament. Um, me too. I'm afraid that's it. That's the end. It's all we have to study for this year. Oh, and hey, while we're here, notice that phrase at the end of Malachi 4, the end of the prophets. This has been misunderstood by some modern readers. Remember that since Isaiah, we've been studying the third section of the Old Testament called the Nevi'im, or in English, the prophets. There's a footnote as well that explains that the phrase, the end of the prophets, means that it is the end of the books of the prophets in the Old Testament. If it really were the end of the prophets, it might be confusing to see John the Baptist at the beginning of the New Testament. Ooh, right. And speaking of that, some of you know that Scripture Gems started in 2020 studying the Book of Mormon. Then, in 2021, we studied the Doctrine and Covenants in church history. And this year, 2022, we studied the Old Testament. I think we have one more book of Scripture that we need to talk about. Oh, yes, we do. It's time to get ready to study the New Testament. Awesome. Can't wait. But I'm afraid you'll have to wait for our future episodes. Aw, but you won't have to wait long. While we're waiting to start the New Testament, we're going to be releasing a video to bridge the 400-year gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Lots of important history happens that will set the stage for the birth of Jesus Christ. We hope you will enjoy it. So until then, keep reading your scriptures, and we'll look forward to talking to you more about them in our next lesson. We'll see you then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but we're really big fans. <laughs>